Cruikshank. I'm the co-chair of the education subcommittee of the BBA's bankruptcy section, along with Dimitri Lev, who I know is in the audience today. We're very excited to welcome you to, uh, for a lively presentation about the ins and outs of Chapter 7 telephonic 341 meetings. Uh, we're lucky today to have with us Bill Harrington, who is who has been the U.S. trustee for Region 1 in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Maine, and Rhode Island for the last 10 years. And if that weren't enough, he is also the United States trustee for Region 2. I know he's a very busy man, so we're very glad to have him here with us. Prior to his time as the United States trustee, he served as the assistant U.S. trustee in Wilmington, Delaware, um, after some, spending some time as a trial attorney in that office. And uh, he's got, as a result of all of his time served with the U.S. trustee, he uh, um, has significant experience in chapter 11, comp uh, complex chapter 11 cases, but he certainly also has a lot of experience with telephonic 341s. Uh, we also have with us today, uh, Donald Lastman, who is a sole practitioner in Needham, Massachusetts. He has been concentrating in the area of business insolvency and business reorganization for the past 35 years. Donald, Mr. Lastman's been a member of the panel of Chapter 7 trustees for over 25 years. Since 2008, he's been co-leading the BBA's efforts to provide legal assistance to the members of the military. And he has worked on informational seminars about consumer and bankruptcy laws and presenting those also to the military, traveling around the state. Among other awards, Mr. Lastman has been awarded, uh, he's been recognized by the BBA for his work on providing legal services to members of uh, the military. Uh, we also have with us uh, Mr. Jonathan Goldsmith, who's a shareholder of Goldsmith Katz and Arginio in Springfield, Massachusetts. Mr. Goldsmith has, for the past 25 years, concentrated his legal practice in the area of commercial law, corporate, and real estate law. In, uh, for the past 15 years, he's also been a member of the panel of bankruptcy trustees. So we have, in addition to the U.S. trustee today, we have two very experienced panel trustees. And I also wanted to mention that Mr. Goldsmith was selected as the first recipient of the U.S. Bankruptcy Court District of Massachusetts Pro Bono Award for Western Massachusetts. So we're delighted to have the three of you here today and the BBA would like to thank you for your efforts in putting this panel together and um, fire away. We're excited to hear how it goes. Thank you very much, Kate. I appreciate that. Um, first, just thanks to everyone for joining the call today. Um, it was interesting. I wrote down on my sheet to say thank you to all for coming. Uh, and then I realized people are not coming because we're all in the virtual world. And that's what we're talking about today. Um, before I start, I do have to give my sort of standard DOJ caveat that anything that I say today is not the opinion of the Department of Justice or the Office of the United States Trustee. It's solely the opinion of Bill Harrington. Uh, and so anything I say today, you can only blame me for. Um, I also have to give my own personal caveat. So if anyone has heard me speak before, um, I apologize because I tend to mumble, but I assure you that's entirely on purpose. So I have plausible deniability of everything that I say today. Um, and I don't cost my AUSTs any problems later. Um, and then I have to give you my Zoom caveat because I have realized that 
like television adds 15 pounds. Uh, the Zoom webinar itself adds 15 pounds. And I've also noticed that it causes my hairline to recede significantly. So if you met me in real life, uh, I have a full head of hair and I'm actually really fit. I'm not the fat bald guy uh, that you see on the screen today. Um, it's really going to be three parts to the program today. I'm going to start off and I'm going to talk a little bit about, you know, how we got here to this sort of virtual telephonic 341 process. Uh, and then Trustee Goldsmith and Trustee Lastman are going to talk, you know, give you the real scoop as to how it works and how it functions in practice uh, and give you some suggestions about pitfalls uh, and some things that you can do to help cooperate with the trustees and make it work more smoothly. Uh, and then we're going to, at the end, run a mock 341. Uh, and that will be very beneficial for those new to the practice or new to, um, or for people who haven't done a telephonic 341. Uh, it, it really is hard for me to believe that we are now entering what I think is um, week 12 or 13 of this crisis. Uh, and it certainly is something you know, a crisis that has in some way or another touched all of us, uh, as we've all had family members or colleagues or acquaintances across the country that have been significantly impacted. And, and you know, so um, our concerns go out for all of those people. But when you think about it, it really is amazing that um, in large part, the bankruptcy system, and I know Judge, Chief Judge Panos touched on this in his state of the court, um, it's amazing that the bankruptcy system here in Massachusetts uh, turned on a dime and instantaneously transformed itself from what was completely an in-person system where people appealed, appeared live uh, to one that now is almost conducted seamlessly entirely in a virtual um, environment. And I did say seamlessly, but that does not mean that there wasn't an incredible amount of work to transform the system from an in-person system uh, to a virtual system. And the work performed by the court, the clerk's office, and really all of the stakeholders in the system to make that happen uh, was really an amazing process. And, and still, I'm astounded that it has gone as well as it has, given that, um, you know, we really had to do this over, overnight and instantaneously, and we were able to do that. And this is the same is true with respect to the 341 meetings. Um, you know, we, we ran into a crisis and un, un, an unbelievable amount of work went into sort of transforming um, the system, which was all in person, evidentiary meetings and hearings, uh, to one that now is conducted, you know, exclusively virtually because it in-person meetings are currently prohibited. And this did happen virtually overnight, although an amazing amount of work went into the overnight process. I think in some ways it's like when, you know, God created the earth in seven days. Uh, it was sort of like, you know, we created the virtual 341 meeting in about seven days as well. And I think it took about the same amount of effort um, for all of the stakeholders to make that work. I do owe a debt of gratitude, uh, and I did want to thank a few people because um, Molly Sharon and Ann Fox at the clerk's office put in an, an unbelievable amount of time and effort to assist our office uh, and the trustees in making this work, and it never would have worked without their efforts, and we really did appreciate uh, all the efforts that they put in. Uh, 
they had to deal with really complex noticing issues. They had to create new ECF drop-down menus uh, for the trustees. So it really was an incredible amount of work and done, you know, under fire and virtually half the time because they couldn't get into their office sometimes as well. Um, there was a lot of work conducted at the national level by the Administrative Office of Courts. Uh, they, they did a lot of work in setting up ECF drop-downs for, for local clerk's offices and heading, putting procedures together for local clerk's offices. The Bankruptcy Noticing Center uh, sent out hundreds of thousands of additional notices to make this work. Um, and the trustees themselves, and, and we have two of the trustees on the line today, uh, and it's an amazing amount of work that the trustees had to do while they were also working from home. And the cooperation um, that the trustees gave my office was really just fantastic. And, you know, no one complained, or maybe they complained a little, but they didn't complain to me. Um, and so it really was an outstanding effort by the trustees. And then I also need to thank my staff, some of which are on the phone today, because there was a lot of behind the scenes work done by my staff. Um, and I said this transition sort of happened overnight and was seamless, but it still was done on the fly. And so there was really no blueprint for how we would do this. There was some historical basis to some of the things that we did to go virtual, but nothing on this scale. And so, um, you know, we're still still today, 12 weeks in, working out a few of the kinks. I still hear about new problems that we haven't discovered yet. Uh, we think we've gotten to the point where we've discovered most of them, and we think we've come up with resolutions for most of them. Um, but like everything else, we are still learning, uh, and we are still trying to correct and perfect this process, even 12 weeks in. Um, I did want to make a point, and I know some people have been frustrated with this process and, and different parts of this process and upset over little parts of this process, but I always want to remind people to take a deep breath when you get frustrated. If you've been on the phone for a long time and you think it's taking longer than it should have and you have childcare issues that you have to deal with, um, just remember that everyone is using their best efforts here. The trustees are trying to make this work. This is more complicated for the trustees. so. If you do get frustrated, take a minute, count to 10, uh, take a deep breath uh, and realize, you know, do whatever you can to cooperate with the trustees and that will make this go more smoothly. Don't fight with the trustees. They're trying to do the best they can. Um, and they are working under the same difficult circumstances that you are working under. And I think if everyone realizes that, I think we can make this work. So far, I wanna thank the bar. I think from what I've heard from the trustees, for the most part, everyone has been incredibly cooperative with the trustees and really worked hard to make this work um, and at every level. And so I really think the bar should be commended uh, for what it has done to cooperate with the trustees and continue to do so. I know, you know, things will come up that are frustrating to people, but please continue to cooperate with the trustees. Um, so now I'm going to talk kind of generally about two things. How did we get here and why did we get here? And then I'm gonna pass it on to, you know, both Jonathan and Don for the real scoop as to, you know, how things work. Um, it's interesting and, and I was, earlier today, I, I got a, a copied on an email from um, one of my son's high school teachers and she always puts quotes at the bottom of the email. And today's quote I thought was actually pretty, um, appropriate for talking about how we got here in the 341 meetings. And the quote was from Arthur Ashe, the famous American tennis player. Uh, and he said, 
you know, start where you are, use what you have and do what you can. And I think that sort of sums up this entire 341 meeting process. We sort of started where we were in mid-March. We had an emergency, a national emergency declaration. Uh, the CDC was recommending that there were no large mass gatherings of people. State and local stay at home and orders were being put in place that prohibited any large mass gatherings. And by any definition, our 341 meetings qualified as large mass gatherings. Um, and so we at the U.S. trustee program knew we had to immediately take steps to make sure uh, that first and foremost, uh, we were protecting the health of the public and any individual that was in any way engaged in the bankruptcy system. And then secondarily, uh, we needed to make sure we were assisting in making sure that the bankruptcy system remained functional. Um, and so our primary goal was health and safety. And so on March 17th, we issued a notice saying that you know, all in-person 341 meetings were prohibited. And at that time we said through April 10th, because I don't think anyone thought at that point uh, we would be into June and still be um, working virtually. Um, we've extended that now a couple times now. So originally we extended it till May 10th. We've now extended it through July 10th. Uh, and we are currently examining whether, you know, any further extensions are going to be necessary. Um, and just as a practical matter, it's extended through July 10th, which necessarily means 341 meetings that are on 20 to 40 days notice. Uh, are, so no meetings will go forward as in-person meetings till at least sometime in August, even if we didn't extend July 10th, which we are currently considering doing. So right now uh, we are extended through July 10th and that may be extended even further. But that does mean there will be no in-person meetings at least through um, sometime in August. Um, so, so why did we do this? And, and the main reason we did this, because the 341 meeting is a key part of the functionality of the bankruptcy system. A lot of our deadlines are keyed off 341 meetings happening, including getting your discharge. You can't get your discharge until you have a 341 meeting. Um, and so we knew good and honest debtors deserve the ability to timely get a discharge. And that can't happen without a 341 meeting. And so we knew we had to get the process started again and find a way to make that work because it would be unfair to the debtors who are filing for bankruptcy uh, to not have a timely 341 meeting. And many deadlines in a bankruptcy case are triggered off of the fact that the 341 meeting occurs. Also, creditors have a right to timely question the debtor under oath before the debtor gets their discharge. So again, it's a creditor's meeting and we needed to get the meeting started so creditors had the ability to participate in the process. And then as a practical matter, if we had to adjourn, um, and there were six, at the time we in, entered the notice on March 17th, there were 60,000 341 meetings scheduled across the country that we had to re-notice. Uh, and if we had to reschedule um, 60,000 meetings that were adjourned to a later time, it was gonna be a logistical nightmare. We didn't have physical 341 space around the country to adjourn those meetings. Trustees would be doing meetings that were 16 hours long, you know, later if they were trying to continue all those meetings. So we knew we had to get that rescheduled. Um, and we knew that were more cases were filing and those cases were gonna to need to be virtual as well. 
So what were the issues that we had to confront? First, we had to find another forum. We couldn't do it in an in-person fashion in a 341 room anymore. Um, so we had to find a virtual forum. We discussed a lot of options about that, you know, how we would do that virtually. And I know courts around the country also are doing it a lot of different ways. Some courts are using Zoom, some courts are using court solutions, some are using court call, um, some courts are using AT&T lines. Um, we decided, and we decided we would go telephonic and we thought for a couple of reasons that was the best forum for us to use for meetings. We knew there would be some problems if we went telephonic and I'll talk about them later. Um, but for security reasons, I think we've all heard about sort of the, the Zoom, you know, appearances by random people in people's classrooms or what have you, uh, and the security concerns that there were with Zoom and some of the other virtual websites. Uh, so for security reasons, we thought telephonic was appropriate. Uh, we also had a, we also were considering an equal access to justice issue. Uh, we wanted to make sure that uh, there was no cost for the participants, uh, the debtors, and we also wanted to make sure most or every debtor had access. And we assumed, uh, well, there may have been technological issues if we went virtually with a web-based system like Zoom. Uh, we did figure that every debtor had access to a telephone and could call in. And so we made that way, every debtor would have access. Um, there were also privacy concerns. I mean, obviously there's PII that is dealt with by the trustees at a 341 meeting, and we did not want a system in place um, which would cause concerns for people with privacy issues. We have said to trustees that if they can solve those three issues, we will let them use Zoom. Uh, and in some cases, trustees have used Zoom for certain meetings uh, because they've been able to satisfy the US trustees office that they've dealt with the security concerns, the equal access to justice concerns and the privacy concerns. But as the presumed method, we decided that telephonic was the most sort of equal method for everyone that would work across the board. Um, and so that's why we selected telephonic. Again, that was sort of a logistical nightmare for us. There are 1,200 to 1,300 trustees across the country. We had to get conference call lines for each one of those trustees across the country. At the same time, every other business in America was trying to secure additional conference call lines. Uh, and so we were able to secure 1,300 conference call lines that we were able to distribute to our trustees and make that work. Um, but again, that was a huge undertaking uh, by facilities people at the US trustee program. Secondarily, we had to make sure we had a system in place that we could preserve the record of the 341 meetings and set up a chain of custody so we could make sure that the, pres the records were preserved. Um, we didn't have digital recorders for every one of our trustees around the country for them to do the recordings virtually. Um, we had recorders in 341 rooms and the trustees would go to 341 rooms and use the digital recorder to be the official record of the meeting at the 341 meeting. Um, so we then had to figure out how we got every trustee in the country a digital recorder uh, so they could do the meetings virtually. Uh, we found out that there were some supply chain issues. Uh, some of the goods that were coming from China were parts that were necessary to make digital recorders. And so there were lots of times we couldn't get digital recorders. That we had delivery issues. When we did get the recorders, how were we going to get them to the trustees? Because the trustees weren't in their offices. They were 
you know, for the most part at home at that time. So we even set up in some offices, the AUST had the trustees drive by and they put the recorders in, the, in their trunk so they wouldn't have uh, contact with the trustees. Um, so we made that happen and all the trustees now have digital recorders so they can do it um, remotely. Because you do have to remember, these are evidentiary hearings that the trustees are required to do and to do an evidentiary hearing, they have to swear in the witness. They have to take testimony under oath. Um, and that's part of the trustee's job. And they have to have a system in place where they can preserve the record uh, in case someone needs to go back to that record at a later time. We also had to put procedures in place. And we had sort of some historical procedures for telephonic meetings, uh, but those procedures were um, used for very rare occasions. Um, and they were pretty strict and, and, and there were significant requirements associated with those meetings. It was very rare that we, we or the trustees would authorize someone to do a telephonic meeting. Um, so this took a lot of cooperation. Um, we needed to figure out how do we ID the debtor? Because um, debtor identification is critical because how do you have an evidentiary hearing uh, with sworn testimony if you don't know who you're talking to? Um, and on a telephone, you don't get to see the debtor. You can't confirm um, that it is the debtor by them handing you an ID and you verifying that the ID is consistent with what is put in the petition and with the person who's sitting in front of you. So we had to come up with procedures to make that work. Um, and so we set up a, a system of procedures where people would provide debtor identification documents before the meetings to the trustees so they would have them in their possession. Uh, and then we set up a system and we used our standard um, affidavit of, you know, oath and affidavit of identity. Uh, and then that was standard that we had done historically. So that was one form and, and you were provided those forms before today. And then the second form we created was an attorney declaration because we didn't think in this virtual world, we'd be get it, everyone would be able to get a notary to come to their house and, or meet with a notary somewhere. So the notary could give the oath and the notary could um, confirm the debtor's identification. So we created a sort of secondary step where we had an attorney declaration um, because we thought it might be easier for the attorney to confirm for the trustee the identity of um, the debtor. And so then we'd have a system in place where the trustees could feel comfortable that they were actually taking testimony from the debtor and the debtor was who the debtor said they were and it wasn't someone else who was giving the testimony on that day. Um, there has been some confusion and I, and, I, and I did want to address this issue. I know there was a question that came to the panelists before the hearing about the attorney declaration and why there were multiple different forms of the attorney declaration. And there are really two different forms. Uh, the only distinction would be paragraph three of that attorney declaration. Um, in one of them, it's silent as to how the debtor is identified by the attorney. And in the other one, in paragraph three, includes information that the attorney has met with the debtor and can confirm that the person on the identification documents is the debtor. Um, we know there are some concerns with that. And, you know, if people are not able to, if people still have to socially distance and they can't meet with their clients, uh, we do recommend that they can modify the form to say, I've met with my client via video as opposed to in person. Um, we do think you do need to, you know, 
or at least I think you do need to meet with your client at some point in time. I know I would never take a case without meeting with my client um, just so I could confirm for my ethical requirements that the client is the person who they say they are. Um, so we do think there are ways you can modify the form or tweak the form. Remember, these are forms. And so if you tweak them to the satisfaction of the trustees, um, that's okay. You can cross out in person and put via video uh, and we would not have a problem with that. And I think the trustees would also not have a problem with that. Um, so I did want to clear up that question, but that was one of the procedures we had to put in place. The other procedure, and we worked very closely with the clerk's offices and the trustees with respect to this, was how were we going to notice the meetings? Um, and again, I think I said before, um, you know, somewhere roughly around uh, 60,000 meetings had to be rescheduled at the time we filed the notice of no in-person meetings in March, and we had to reschedule, or we, we had to notice as telephonic any additional meetings that were going forward. Um, so somewhere around 500,000 to a million additional notices had to be sent out across the country uh, to reschedule these meetings. And that was a huge undertaking by the Bankruptcy Noticing Service um, Center. And so that was something we worked with the clerk's office to, to put in place. And you know the clerk's office did a fantastic job of making that happen. So they were um, the issues we had to deal with with respect to noticing. Um, I know now I've, I think I've exceeded my time in babbling about the how and why we got here. Um, so with that, I am now gonna turn the presentation over to Jonathan and Don for the real scoop as a practical matter, how this is really working. Thank you, Bill. I'm gonna uh, take this part of it. And um, can everybody hear me? Can you hear me, Bill? All right, great. So uh, first I wanna uh, thank and, and commend Bill Harrington and the staff at Region 1, as well as the entire uh, US trustee program for acting very quickly and taking necessary steps really to protect the health of the public and those involved in the bankruptcy proceedings while ensuring that the system remains functional during these current public uh, health emergency. One of the things that Bill has implemented, which has uh, been very helpful, is that um, he convenes a meeting on a weekly basis, telephonic uh, meeting with all the panel trustees uh, to go over updates on procedures and answer questions and address concerns. And that has very much been appreciated by, by all the panel trustees. So one of the major, and I, I know Bill mentioned it, one of the major steps taken by the US trustee program has been to establish a standard operating procedure for conducting uh, the telephonic 341 meetings. These procedures have now been in place for, I believe, a little bit over two, two months. And in my observation, uh, and I believe this is shared by um, those that are involved in the system, the procedure is working quite well under the circumstances. And I must say, uh, kudos go out to the, the U.S. trustee, the panel trustees, the court, and in no small part, the practitioners who have all been working really cooperatively to ensure that the, the process works as smoothly as possible. So thank you. So let me, let me walk you through, again, the mechanics of it. So the first thing is that the 341 meeting notice gets sent out uh, shortly after the bankruptcy case is filed, as normally um, it has, was done before the COVID-19 emergency uh, uh, came into play. 
the clerk's office notice, the notice of the 341 meeting is essentially, uh, it's form 309A and it's essentially, uh, that is for the individual and joint individual debtors. It's identical to the notice that was provided before COVID-19 uh, emergency procedures. The only difference is that where it says the meeting will be held, uh, it's obviously not a place it says telephonically. So the notice provides the date, the time, uh, and indicates it'll be conducted telephonically. And again, that gets sent out to the parties that received it uh, uh, in the past, uh, the debtor, counsel to the debtor, uh, creditors and parties and in interests. Uh, so what happens after that is at least uh, uh, two weeks prior to the notice uh, of the actual 341 meeting, there will be posted uh, by the panel trustee on the docket a uh, document called the Statement of Dial-In Information Concern, and that will provide the toll-free conference call as well as the uh, participant code number for parties to access the, the hearing. And each, as uh, Bill said, that each trustee has been provided with a toll-free conference call number. So uh, those will be uh, available. Um, there's not on the notice, but they are available on the, uh, at, at the current time on the particular uh, PACER report, docket report. So uh, from there, uh, at least one day or 24 hours before the scheduled 341 meeting, whichever is greater, uh, the trustee needs to be provided with a photo identification and proof of the debtor's social security num number. So that's usually sent by um, uh, the debtor's counsel and provided, and it needs to be sent in a secure method, either a portal or encrypted email, et cetera. And that, again, uh, please make sure that that's provided at least one business day before uh, the scheduled 341 meeting. As um, what will happen once um, the 341 meeting is conducted, the trustee uh, over the phone will seek to verify on the record the last four digits of the uh, debtor's social security number and as well as verify the photo ID. Usually people provide driver's license and, and my practice is to ask debtors to confirm the last four digits of the, or their, um, uh, their uh, license number so I can confirm on the record that the individual uh, on the record uh, the information that's provided to me on the record matches the information that's been provided to me by, by the council. The next uh, log uh, logistical issue is um, how to address uh, the requirement under 11 U.S.C. 343 that the debtor attend the Section 341 meeting and submit to an examination under oath. So Bill had mentioned about the forms and uh, let me walk you through this process. So um, well, now the, really it's the debtor's attorney must make arrangements for an independent third party authorized to be present to administer the oath at an alternate location or the debtor's attorney, if authorized to administer the oath, may perform such a function. Uh, the declaration, and I'm going to ask Daniel to post that, uh, if we can show that up. There's a declaration regarding administrative oath and confirmation of ident identity and social security number. And that form is, needs to be completed by the third party that's going to be administering the oath on behalf of the debtor. Um, so um, that's the form. And what I, my practice is 
uh, to actually email that form and the next form I'm going to uh, go over with you to debtors council. That's what I am doing now. And I provide those forms um, at least a, a week or two before the 341 meeting uh, until everybody gets acquainted with the forms and uh, probably can download them and, and save the form uh, for future cases. So if the compliance with this uh, manner of administering the, the oath is not possible or practical under the uh, emergent circumstances, then uh, the, the, the attorney can file what they prepare what they call attorney's declaration regarding administrative oath and confirmation of ID and social security number. So if you can, Daniel, post that uh, next document, which is the attorney declaration. This is the latest version. I know that there had been uh, two versions that, or a prior version that was uh, circulated. Uh, paragraph three is the one, and Bill had mentioned that that's the one that um, um, had changed from the prior version. And, uh, and again, uh, that needs to be provided uh, to the trustee prior to the 341 meeting. So if that's provided, the trustee then will administer the oath. I, my practice, um, and again, we've been doing this for roughly two months. My practice has been to ask the attorney to acknowledge that to the best of his or her knowledge, the person on the phone is the debtor. So after um, I administer the oath, I asked uh, the attorney to confirm um, that they believe that the person on the phone is, is their client, the debtor. Um, after this is done, um, I will then ask the debtor to acknowledge that they have reviewed and signed the bankruptcy documents that have been, uh, um, that have been provided uh, as part of the bankruptcy package. As you're aware, when it's an in-person 341 meeting, uh, the debtor's counsel is required to show the signed signature page uh, to the debtor during the course of the 341 meeting, and we confirm that that's their they will confirm that that's their signature on that. Um, obviously, we can't do that, but uh, but my practice is again to ask them to confirm that they've reviewed and signed it before before that uh, uh, before they were filed with the bankruptcy court. Um, there's a couple other logistical things that uh, that need to be addressed, and I want to just bring you uh, make you aware of it. Um, my practice has been. Um, to ask every debtor whether there's a domestic support obligation. And I provide a form at the 341 meeting that has them fill it out, either acknowledging that there's no requirement for a DSO, or if there is a DSO, they would check off that there is a DSO and provide me with the information before they leave the 341 meeting room. Um, that can obviously be accomplished, but I remind the debtor's counsel that the requirement that that has to be, if there is a DSO, they need to submit that form uh, to me so I can provide the necessary uh, uh, letter and information to the taxing authorities and to the recipient of the DSO. Um, the other uh, thing is that, uh, as everybody's aware, in the hearing, 341 hearing rooms, there's a notice both in uh, English and in Spanish, uh, in bankruptcy informational handout that explains different aspects of the bankruptcy process. Obviously, uh, debtors don't have the ability to access that. Um, I suggest that uh, debtors counsel provide that notice to them uh, before they actually file. They should be provided that before they file the bankruptcy case, because I will ask if they've uh, acknowledged uh, receiving that document 
and confirming that they understand they filed a Chapter 7 bankruptcy case. Uh, case. So it's, it's, again, in my um, observation, of it's, it's worked out very smoothly. Um, debtors counsel have been very cooperative. And, uh, you know, I'd rather see the debtor face to face. Uh, but under the circumstances, this seems to be working out quite nicely. There are a couple other points I just want to bring again to your attention. Um, just please remind your clients when they call in to keep their phone on mute until such time as their case is called. There's been instances, uh, at least every rotation, there's one or two debtors that call in and interrupt the meeting that's going on because they don't realize that they're, they're, there's other cases that are called during the block of time that their case is called. So please uh, instruct them to, again, mute their phones until their case is called. Uh, there's also, we continue to use interpret talk for uh, anybody that needs an interpreter. Uh, but what I ask debtors counsel, if they could give me heads up of the need for an interpreter, that would perhaps make it, it does make it a little bit easier for me to, um, to uh, keep the meetings going in a um, efficient manner. I have the ability sometimes, uh, my paralegals here, she'll get the um, interpreter on the line and then it plug into the uh, conference call. Um, so we can do that uh, relatively quickly. Otherwise, what I need to do is, and I think other trustees are doing this, they'll actually get, take their cell phone, put it on speakerphone, get the interpreter on the phone and interpret it that way. So, but if you, if you let us know in advance, uh, it may be, uh, it, it is helpful. And uh, at times it also allows us to uh, consolidate. There may be in one particular block of time, other people that need a interpreter and I can keep the interpreter on the phone for that other case as well. Um, so that's, that's what I have to share with you in terms of the telephonic uh, hearings. Again, um, the forms uh, provide them um, to us timely. Uh, and um, I, I think it, I'm very pleased the way it's moving along. I don't know, Don, if you have any thoughts or comments or insight as to how we should uh, make it even more efficient. Yeah, I guess, Jonathan, there's a couple things I'd add. One, the um, phone numbers for the call-in uh, for the trustee are the same. So if you have a meeting on June 5th, um, the right. number, the, the, the phone number and the uh, ID is posted for that case. If you then have a case on July 5th, it's going to be the same. With the same so, trustee. Yep, for the same trustee. So each trustee has a phone number, each trustee has a code. And so if you knew the code for Lastman for your June 5th meeting and the phone number, you're going to know the phone number and the code for Lastman in your July. It's not changing. We're not trying to uh, make this more complicated than it needs to be. Um, the other thing I want to remind people is make sure your clients know only the last four numbers of their Social Security card and their driver's license. Uh, many people blurt out the entire number. Not a good idea, and I can never stop them. I can't play background music loud enough to stop them. Uh, so make sure you tell them that that's really all they need to do. Um, there was a question about the um, attorney declaration and the declaration regarding administration of oath. The attorney executes the attorney declaration. The administration of the oath, it's not signed by the trustee. The trustee can administer the oath, 
but if the attorney wants to administer the oath, and I've had some attorneys where their client is coming into the office, they're separated by a partition, they're properly social distancing, the attorneys are administering the oath as if, and if they are a notary, they can do that. So in some cases, the declaration regarding administer, administration of the oath can be signed by the attorney if the attorney is present with his client in the same space and the attorney is a notary. But in, I'd say 95% of my cases, I'm just getting the 341 attorney declaration and that is signed by the attorney. Um, I had another question about, can you use um, one attorney declaration for joint petitions? Yes, that's what I've been doing in all the cases. Just have all of the information filled in for both of the debtors. So that's all I have to add, Jonathan, on your items. Um, what I wanted to do next was go to the um, slide uh, suggestions to practitioners. Uh, so if we could have that shown, I'll go through a few of the items that I think would really be helpful um, for practitioners to know in advance of the 341 meeting, um, what kind of documentation you're gonna wanna gather together to be prepared for the meeting. What kind of questions will trustees be asking? What should you have looked at in advance so that you'll be well prepared for the meeting? Uh, I think the key um, is uh, number uh, item bullet number one, which is trust, but verify everything. I think um, you need to uh, see what the trustee, uh, what, the, uh, what your client um, says they have or doesn't have um, and make sure that what, they, um, what they're telling you is what they mean to be telling you. A lot of uh, debtors do not necessarily understand property rights and property interests. And so they will say something that may or may not be accurate, um, but get documentary evidence of everything that's important um, so that you'll have proof for a trustee who, who, who will want to see uh, certain things uh, to uh, verify what's on the petition. It, it's very much like preparing a tax return. All the backup documentation is sent to the accountant. The accountant prepares the form, but he's got all the backup. It's the same thing. The bankruptcy petition is just a summary of everything that the, the lawyer has looked at, but everything on that bankruptcy petition, a bankruptcy trustee may want to see. So you want to make sure that you have the documentary evidence of everything that's in that petition. And that way you're not caught later on when a trustee asks for something and then you find out that what your client told you innocently in 99 out of 100% of the cases, just they didn't understand. And so you have to amend and maybe you could have done some pre-bankruptcy planning had you known, but you didn't. And now it's too late because the case has already been filed. Uh, so some, some, um, Elementary things, if they own a car, you want to see the title. If they have a loan, you want to see the documents. If they rent an apartment, you want to see the agreement. If they have a debt, you need to see a statement or you need to see a credit report. If they have a bank account, you need to see a year. I think a minimum of a year of bank account statements is important because not only do you need to see that they have a bank account, uh, but you want to see what's been done. Uh, because anything within a certain period of time before the bankruptcy uh, petition is filed is subject to uh, clawback powers of the bankruptcy trustee, and you don't want to be caught. And there are um, uh, many cases I have where in looking through the bank statements, I'll see unusually large uh, receipts or disbursements. And in 99 out of 100 cases, there's a simple explanation for that. But um, if you know the explanation in advance, then you'll be able to tell the trustee at the 341 meeting, 
and the meeting won't have to be continued. You'll be ready to go and you'll be able to say, oh yes, I know exactly what this is, this is what it was, this is where it went, and it's not a problem. Um, in particular, um, real estate documents, right? So you wanna be able to look at mortgages, you wanna be able to look at deeds. This is a very confusing area for um, many debtors. Many debtors are not aware of who owns the property, if there's a mortgage on it. Uh, many debtors are not aware of how they own it, what their interest is, um, what properties are worth. Uh, so I think real estate is very confusing um, and that is very important to um, track down. Uh, I know in my practice as a debtor's lawyer, I always get a title rundown. There's a fee for that, uh, but I always feel more confident. Even though all of the information is available online, um, I find that sometimes I'm just not quite as adept as an examiner is. Uh, and then you have documentation, and in 95% of the cases, you're not going to find anything, but in the 5%, you will. And if you know it before you file, you can address it and correct it or change it or not file uh, because of, of what you found. Um, I, I think for one second on just a, a sort of a pointer in the connection with uh, checking real estate. I've had instances both as a bankruptcy trustee as well as a, a debtor's counsel where uh, debtors um, parents or um, senior family members for estate planning purposes have transferred their residences to the debtor and retained a life estate. Now, uh, some debtors don't understand what that means and you have to probe and, and my experience has been to uh, practice is once you ask the question, uh, check the real estate, the parents' real estate to make sure that they're not listed as one of the owners, the debtor that is, not listed as one of the owners. Uh, debtors will awful, off, often think that, uh, well, I'm only getting that when my parents pass away. Yes, I'm going to get their house when they pass away. Well, yes, but you've already got a, a interest in it perhaps because it's been deeded over to you. Uh, so you have a remainder interest, which is an asset of the bankruptcy estate. So um, that's one of the areas that, um, that I encourage practitioners to be cognizant of. Yeah, Jonathan, I'll, I'll just um, piggyback on that. I think trusts are particularly prickly um, to understand, to figure out. Uh, they um, are, right now, the majority of cases that I'm administering involve trusts uh, and trust interests and um, people um, not adequately investigating beforehand what the nature of the interest was and what the debtor's interest was and what powers the debtor had under the trust. Uh, so there's a lot of things to think about where trusts are involved and I think you have to be very careful and slow in terms of um, bankruptcy proceeding with um, uh, trust interests involved. Well, quite frankly, a lot of my trust cases convert to Chapter 13. Uh, and then there's some payment arrangement with the Chapter 13 trustee to um, escape the grasp of a friendly Chapter 7 trustee. So uh, be careful uh, with those in particular. Uh, personal injury uh, matters are also uh, quite difficult and, and many debtors simply just forget about it. So many debtors will be involved, they'll get some class action litigation letter of some kind um, and then really never think anything about it. Um, and rightly so, because many debtors never hear anything about it. Uh, and then that pops up uh, at some point in time, either during the 341 meeting or later on, I'll get a letter from debtor's counsel saying, my uh, uh, 
um, debtors inform me they're part of a class action suit or more likely I'll get a call from the litigation counsel involved in the class action that'll say I did a search and I see that a year ago there was a bankruptcy proceeding by Mrs. or Mr. X and how to deal with that. So I think it's careful to probe um, in connection with, with, with that. Uh, there are the other though, thing that, oh, go ahead. I'm just sorry. I, I just, I, in the last month, uh, several months, I've received um, four letters from litigation counsel, four separate cases, which have been closed anywhere from two years ago to five years ago, six years ago, uh, about a class, the, uh, the debtor being a party to a class action um, lawsuit. And some of these are very sizable recoveries. So that's, an, you know, the, the, the claim arose prior to the filing of the bankruptcy. The debtor may not, um, I don't think uh, in these instances, the debtor intended to uh, not disclose it. They didn't think about it at the time. Um, but those are assets that are going to be administered through the, the bankruptcy process once the... Right. Yeah, I'll, I'll, say, um, I'll say two other things. And that is that um, inspecting documents is very important because you may catch a, a defect. So there may be a defect in the mortgage. There may be a defect in um, the automobile um, uh, arrangement, the um, automobile lien, the lien on the automobile may not have been perfected or perfected timely. The mortgage notary may be defective. And you've got to think about what all that means so that if a case is filed, you are likely to know the result of that. So looking at documents will help you find defects and really help your planning on, uh, on what to do. Very important to make sure the petition is up to date. So many debtors, believe it or not, are slow to pay and slow to gather information. And so you wanna make sure that a debtor that you met with in November of 2019, but are filing in April of 2020, the information is accurate and up to date for the time at which the case is filed. And also the, the, the uh, filing date is relatively close in proximity to the date the documents are signed and dated. So I have seen cases where there's a disparity in filing date and signature date, and then also the information on the petition and the um, date that the actual bankruptcy case is filed. So by the time the bankruptcy case is filed, the car that they own has been repossessed or the debt that they had is now a larger amount. So I think you wanna make sure that the information is close to the, um, the filing date. Um, as, as Jonathan mentioned, Documents we need to receive 60 days in advance of the creditor meeting include, or documents we need to receive a week in advance of the creditor meeting include tax returns. And if the debtor has an interest in a corporation, I typically like to see the corporate tax returns as well. Not many debtors do, uh, but some do. Uh, and uh, I think a practice pointer for any debtor with an interest in a corporate uh, entity is to look over the corporate papers and see whether or not there are any obligations as between the corporation and the individual debtor. So if the debtor files, does the corporation owe money to the debtor or might the debtor owe money to the corporation because the trustee may have some interest in how, that's, how that works out. And also payment advices. Uh, we need 60 days of payment advices. And that's 60 days before the petition. In many cases, I'm getting payment advices that are three, four, and five months before the petition date. Not satisfactory. 60 days is 60 days. Uh, and um, that is really what, you, uh, really what we need. Uh, Jonathan, I'm going to turn it back over to you to cover between petition date and case closing. Thank you. So one of the things that is very helpful is to, um, between the filing date and the 341 meeting, is to make sure that you share with uh, 
your client the actual procedures, what's what to be expected. Um, you know, now that we're conducting 341 meetings telephonically, explain to them that, again, there'll be other parties uh, on the phone, most likely. There are other cases that are called uh, in the same block that their case is called, and they have to just sit patiently and wait, put their phone on mute. Um, and, and once we get through this pandemic and we're back uh, in in-person 341 meetings, um, you know, again, explain to them uh, the whole process. I do that, and and I the counsel that I uh, that does that do efficient job and are those that really um, explain all the aspects of the 341 meeting to their clients, and it makes it go a lot smoother. So just uh, just uh, please uh, make sure they uh, are fully aware of it. One of the things that um, again, this won't be an issue for the telephonic 341 meetings, but once we're in, in person 341 meetings, remind your clients, I do this and um, and I think it's a good practice, to remind them through an email or a phone call a couple of days before the, of the need to bring their social security verification and their picture ID, because there's many instances where uh, debtors show up and forget to bring that information and it's required that we continue the meeting to another uh, 341 date. Uh, in time in order to get verification. So um, that's just a, a, a pointer that I want to uh, suggest that uh, you take care of uh, uh, on a regular basis. Uh, Don already uh, had mentioned about the need to uh, provide the tax return and the 60 days worth of uh, uh, pay uh, advices. One of the things that I still see uh, when those, those documents are forwarded over to me uh, the entire social security numbers are still on the tax returns, including dependents, uh, social security numbers. Um, please make sure you redact all of that information other than the last few digits of the debtor's social security number when those are sent over to me. Um, I, um, I don't care how those documents are sent over. In other words, they can be sent to me by email or they can sent, be sent to me through the mail or they can be sent to me uh, via the fax. I know uh, other trustees have specific ways uh, and manners by which they want to receive those documents. So please uh, make sure you understand your particular trustee uh, process and procedures for those kind of documents. Um, again, uh, the, the informational um, notice sheet, I provide, well, I want to make sure that the debtors have looked at that before they come up to the 341 meeting uh, table. Uh, so make sure that they've had the opportunity to look at that information and understand the fact that they are in a chapter seven bankruptcy case. Uh, there's, there, it's always helpful that if you um, have some particular issue in a case uh, that you let the trustee know in advance of the 341 meeting. Uh, for example, if you've got, uh, you know, there's a purchase and sale on a piece of property or you've got uh, the debtor has a business and their, their assets that need to be secured uh, in, in, in before they're liquidated, please let us know in advance. Let us know, frankly, you know, once the case is filed, that would be, uh, that's very helpful for us. Um, in terms of uh, operating, um, just make, let's be clear that the debtor doesn't have the ability in chapter seven to continue to operate a business. So if you got a, let me give you an example. A debtor runs a pizza uh, parlor as a sole proprietor. 
uh, he, can't he or she can't continue to operate that business uh, unless the assets are abandoned by the trustee. Uh, the only party that can operate a business in a chapter seven bankruptcy case is the trustee, and that's only uh, after the court provides permission to do that. And those are usually done on very rare occasions in which uh, the, the reason for doing that is to perhaps maximize the recovery of assets for the, uh, the bankruptcy estate and the creditors. Um, personal injury claims, they, they pop up uh, periodically and um, the counsel for the debtor on occasion don't inform the uh, special counsel or the counsel that the PI attorney that there's a bankruptcy that's been filed. And I've had instances where the, the, the counsel has proceeded to uh, settle those claims and uh, they have no authority to settle those claims. It's an asset of the bankruptcy case. They can only do that uh, either the, the claim abandonment, the PI case gets abandoned or the bankruptcy court approves um, uh, the settlement of the personal injury claim. And also uh, personal injury lawyers that proceed post bankruptcy um, without court permission are risking that their fees will not be allowed um, from the, uh, the settlement proceeds for any work that was done during the bankruptcy process. Um, it'd be helpful as a trustee, if there is a personal injury claim, uh, to provide me uh, with information, maybe an opinion from special counsel, uh, the PI lawyer, as to the range in which they believe that that claim, what the, what the worth of that claim is. Uh, it may be exempt, it may not be exempt, it may not be worth the trustee pursuing that, because uh, it's not going to provide a meaningful dividend to creditors. But the sooner you get that information to the trustee, uh, the better it is for all parties in terms of being able to determine whether that's going to be an asset. Uh, again, that's going to be administered through the bankruptcy uh, state. Um, one of the things that I, um, well, I think I'm going to, Don, do you want to turn over? Let's see. Let me just look at the list here. Uh, let me just cover a couple other things and I'm going to turn it over to you, Don, for after the 341 meeting issues. Um, I, there's been a, a many occasions in which the debtors council failed to bring the signed petition and the declaration of electronic filing with the original wet signature of the debtor to the 341 meeting room. And again, um, the debtors are required to confirm their signatures on those documents, the petition, the, the uh, declaration, um, and I please remember to bring those to uh, the meeting so we can confirm that they reviewed and signed those signatures, uh, those documents. Um, so that's all I have for right now. Don? Great, so a couple things I wanted to um, circle back on um, before I get to after the 341 meeting in terms of preparing the client for the 341 meeting, right? I simply tell, them, tell the client, tell the truth, if they don't know the answer, say they don't know the answer. Now, what's very interesting with the telephonic meetings is when you're in person and you see your client slowly getting out of control, you can take charge uh, and you can kind of reel them back in. On the telephone, that is really tough to do. And I don't know what the good suggestion is other than you might have a cell phone line to the to to your client or somehow have something set up on email so that you can communicate with them because you cannot stop your client from 
saying something that they don't really mean to say or that's not accurate and it's done. So I think one of the um, interesting things as trustees we struggle, we don't have the client in front of us so we can't give them the, the test of looking them in the eye and are they really telling us what, what's going on? We don't have that body language, but I think the debtors council has the same exact problem and um, I don't know what the result is to, to watch that, but I just be aware of that uh, because things get blurted out um, or you have those questions where you ask the question, the debtor will look to his lawyer before answering. There's nobody to look at here. Uh, so it's, it, it's, it's unique on both sides of the aisle, as they say. Uh, one other thing I wanted to mention was IFPs because we are seeing more of those and we may see many more of those in the future if, if there's a big consumer wave of bankruptcy cases indeed on the horizon. And I just wanted to remind people with respect to those uh, IFPs, those are where you're seeking to file the case without paying the filing fee. The attorney fee can still be paid, um, but the filing fee may not need to be. Two requirements, your income's less, the, the person's income is less than 150% of the poverty line, and those poverty line numbers are available um, online. Um, but also that um, they can't pay. They have to say they cannot pay. So I found in, in a number of cases where the lawyer has been paid, but the court hasn't been, that indeed the client could pay um, because the client, how did the, A, how did the client pay the lawyer to begin with? Where did that money come from? Did it come from a third party? Did it come from a tax refund? Um, did it come from cutting expenses? Did the client include credit card payments in their monthly expenses, they're not gonna have any more, so they have excess income. So just, all I would say is, I would say, again, 99 out of 100 cases, the IFP applications are perfectly fine. Uh, but in those cases, and, and most of them, by the way, are the lawyers doing the work pro bono, uh, but not all. And if the lawyer is getting paid, then just think about how that's happening and whether or not that the way the lawyer is getting paid could also pay the court because the trustees are looking at it. They will want to get at least a year's worth of bank statements to see, to verify the validity of the IFP request. Um, after the 341 meeting, um, not a lot to say except that as debtors counsel, after the 341 meeting, what you're hoping to see is the NDR, the no distribution report and the meeting held quickly, right on the docket. Both those entries have to be made by a trustee and hopefully you'll see them, I think, in most, with most trustees, they'll enter in that same day. So if the NDR is filed and the meeting's been held, uh, then you should have smooth sailing, at least from the trustee's perspective. Creditors have time to object to things, but as a general proposition, if the trustee's okay, um, you ought to be okay. And if the uh, no asset report is not entered immediately, then there might be an issue. You might know about it at the 341 meeting uh, based on questions from the trustee. If the trustee has questions, get the documentary evidence the trustee wants as soon as possible. You want to get, right, as debtors counsel, you want the case to close as soon as possible. And as trustee, we want to get the doc case closed as soon as possible as well. All we need is the information uh, that we may have requested at the 341 meeting. So the sooner you can get that to us and the better the explanation is you can provide than the need to have continued 341 meetings is lessened. Uh, my practice is to continue a 341 meeting wherever I've asked for documentation, but in most cases, if the documentation comes in before the continued meeting, I'll take the meeting off. You, you and your client will not have to spend additional time, effort, and money appearing at a 341 meeting that's continued. 
um, because you have given me the documentation and explained everything. And whenever I ask for documents, I'll tell you why I'm asking for them. So you'll know the reason and you can address that um, when, you, when you produce the documents. Um, remember also the discharge and the case closing and abandonment of assets and administration of assets, all those things are going on separate tracks. So a case can be open to administer assets for months or years. The debtor may have had his discharge right away, um, but the case may still stay open. Uh, and until the trustee is done administering the assets, the case is not closed. Uh, this um, bothers some debtors. They want their case to be closed. Uh, and I think you just have to be explained, particularly in cases where there's non-exempt assets, you know it when the case is filed, tell your client, you, you can get your discharge, which is a key component of the bankruptcy process, but the case may be open to administer assets that were in existence on the date the bankruptcy petition was filed. I see some confusion about that with debtors and their counsel. And the case will remain open until such time as the trustee has uh, completed their administration, right? So a complete home run case, case is filed, you have your creditor meeting, and then you get your discharge and all that can happen in three to four months. And the cases that can be a little more problematic will stretch out over that either because there's a discharge issue or there's not in the discharge enters, but there may be assets to administer over time. So a case can remain open for two or three years. Uh, that's all I have on the post 341 meeting items. Jonathan, anything you want to add or questions you want to answer? Well, there is a question here. Uh, someone asked, do you want only the last four uh, numbers shown when the social security is sent to you? No, uh, when we're being provided with a social security verification uh, for, as a result of uh, conducting these telephonically, we need uh, the entire social security number so we can confirm um, the social security number with the information that's provided. Um, to us, uh, that should be sent again in a secure manner. Um, right, yeah, so we wanna see the, most uh, debtors council are sending me a copy of a social security card and a driver's license or a passport or a Massachusetts identification card, something with a picture um, and a identification and then the something with the full complete social security number. But as, as Don said before, at the meeting, remind your clients they should only say the last four digits, right? right. They should not say the entire number. And, and that can be hard for people to remember. They're so accustomed to blurting out their, you know, entire social security number when that question comes up. Right. Okay, so I think the um, next thing that we want to move to is the um, 341 meeting hypothetical. Um, so if we can bring that up. Great. Um, so this is a um, 341 meeting um, hypothetical that's based on an actual, um, based in large part drawn from um, a um, uh, typical consumer case. Um, and uh, we want to walk through for those who haven't seen a creditor uh, meeting because now they're kind of hard to see. Um, you would have to find, somehow, find one and then phone in, but you, actually they're impossible to see, at least in Massachusetts right now. You cannot see how a 341 meeting happens. Um, you could hear, um, but we'll give you an opportunity to see one. Uh, and this is um, uh, 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 in large part elementary, but in large part how most cases go, uh, how most of the cases go. There are a few complexities in this and, and we'll go that, um, we'll go through those. Uh, 
this uh, single, I'm, I'm going to give a one minute um, summary on this, uh, and then we'll conduct the meeting. Um, I'm going to play the role of the Chapter 7 trustee. Uh, Bill Harrington is going to play the role of the Chapter 7 debtor. Uh, Jonathan is going to pay the role of everybody else. Uh, so he's debtor's counsel, and if there's a creditor present, he may ask a few questions about that or anything else that he thinks might be important. Jonathan will fill in. So a uh, single father of two living in Boston, um, and you can see um, the uh, unsecured debt is roughly uh, around uh, $83,000 total. A lot of it is student loan debt. Um, there's also uh, child support arrearage. Uh, and then just a lot of credit card debt, hospital, um, medical debt, um, uh, things of that kind. Um, this, this particular case, uh, the client was plainly a uh, IFP. Uh, the, the income was nominal, um, basically SNAP benefits. That's, uh, that's and, and a little bit of part-time employment. But if you put the, um, for a household of three, um, if you put together the um, income, they were underneath the uh, poverty guideline. In this case, in fact, I think was handled without an attorney fee as well. So, um, uh, but perhaps not, I'm not positive on that. So um, that kind of sets the stage for this. Um, and what I'd like to do now is um, go through the 341 meeting. So if everybody else is ready, um, we'll get going. So at this time, I'd like um, uh, the debtor, William Harrington, and counsel Jonathan Goldsmith to unmute their phones, please. And could you just signal to me that you're on the phone? I'm on the phone, Trustee Lassman. This is the debtor, Bill Harrington. And this is attorney uh, Jonathan Goldsmith representing the debtor, William Harrington. Okay, I would ask at this time all other people on the line, uh, please have your phones on mute. Uh, you can continue to listen the meeting, to the meeting, uh, but please do not unmute your phone. The only people that should be answering questions uh, at this time are the debtor, William Harrington, and the lawyer, Jonathan Goldsmith. Um, at this time, I'm going to ask uh, the debtor, William Harrington, to, to raise his right hand. Uh, do you solemnly swear the testimony you're about to give is true and correct? I do. And can you please tell me your name? William Harrington. The first thing I'm going to need to do is verify um, uh, your identification. Um, could you please tell me the last four digits of your social security number? Just the last four digits? Just the last four digits. Yeah, um, uh, 2259. Okay, that matches the copy of the social security card sent to me in advance of the meeting by your counsel. Could you please also give me the last four digits on your Massachusetts driver's license? Okay, um, yeah, that's uh, 4634. Okay, that also matches the information supplied to me by your counsel in advance of the meeting. Um, did you review all your bankruptcy documents before you signed them? Yeah, I, I reviewed all the documents that um, my my attorney sent to me, yes. And was everything accurate? Uh, I tried to be accurate, yeah. Is there anything you'd like to change at this time? Uh, no, I didn't see any, no, nothing I want to change. Um, you, the reason you're appearing uh, for a telephonic 341 meeting is that the bankruptcy code requires you to appear, answer questions under oath. All your answers are recorded on tape. Do you have any questions about that? 
No, my, my lawyer told me that, that that's what was going to happen. Okay. Can you briefly tell me the reason that you commenced this bankruptcy case? What happened to you? Yeah, I, I just, I just had a, a lot of debts and, and, you know, I've been trying to get a job full time and I haven't been able to do it. I just haven't had enough money to, you know, my credit card debts, I, I just can't pay all my bills. And so, um, you know, I needed some help. Have you ever owned any real estate? No, no, I've never owned any real estate. How many people in your household at this time? Um, well, well, I, I'm, I'm separated and I have two dependents, but like currently living with me right now, uh, it's just me. My, my children live with my wife. And you own, and uh, you rent? Yeah, yeah. And are you related in any way to your landlord? No. no. Does anyone owe you any money for any reason? Oh, I wish. Do you think you have the right to sue anyone? Uh, no, no, I don't have the right to sue anyone. Have, have you been in court for any reason in the last year? No, this is the first time I've been in court. And have you consulted with any lawyers other than your bankruptcy lawyer for legal advice about anything in the last two years? No, it, it, I haven't talked to any lawyers other than Attorney Goldsmith. Um, I see that you have some student loans. Do you, do you, do you remember what those were for? Yeah, um, you know, when I when I got out of the army, I, I went to school for a couple of years at Bridgewater, and uh, and you know, I I didn't finish my degree, but I had a couple of years at Bridgewater. I was I was a history major. Are you a, a trustee or beneficiary of any trust? Um, no, not to my knowledge. So you haven't set up a trust for anyone's benefit. You're not aware of anyone setting up a trust for your benefit. No, I don't have anything like that. Okay, do you have any retirement assets of any kind? Again, I wish. Uh, not right now. Okay. I noticed also a uh, child support obligation. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I try to help out my wife as much as I can, and, and we're separated, and we have a, you know, some support, we have a support agreement. Um, and, you know, I've been trying to make the payments on that when I can, but I, I just, you know, I haven't always had the money to make those payments. So I'm trying, I, you know, I'd really like to do that, but I don't have the money right now. Attorney Goldsmith, um, in connection with the domestic support obligation, I'm going to need you to provide me with two things. Um, first, I'm going to need the complete name and address of the party to whom the support obligation is owed, um, include the zip code, the street number, everything for that person, and also um, I'm going to need to know um, the name, uh, a complete name and mailing address of the uh, debtor's current employer. I'll be happy to provide that to you, Trustee Lastman. Uh, we'll get it to you within the next four days. Um, uh, uh, Mr. Harrington, um, you're currently employed. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm part-time, part-time right now. And do you receive income from any source other than your SNAP benefits and your um, employment wages? No, no, I have the SNAP and then, you know, when I can get hours, um, I have my part-time job. Do you expect your employment situation will improve? Your uh, wages may increase in the near future. I mean, I've been trying for a long time to get more hours and get another job. So I, I, don't, I don't think so. It doesn't look good. Have you destroyed all the credit cards that are the subject of your bankruptcy petition? Yeah, my my um, 
my attorney told me I had to cut those up, and so I cut those up. Have you ever inherited anything? Again, no. I, you know, I wish I inherited something. It would make life a lot easier. Do you expect to inherit anything in the next six months? No. If you were to inherit anything within the next six months, you have an obligation to let your attorney know that, uh, and he would then have to notify me. Do you understand that? Yeah. Yeah, I understand that. I, um, did your lawyer explain to you the um, effect that a bankruptcy filing may have on your credit? Yeah, well, I, I talked about that with my lawyer, yep. And did he talk to you about Chapter 13 and Chapter 7? He did, he did. I, he mentioned both of those. And did he also explain to you what a discharge of debt in bankruptcy, what that means? Yeah, he mentioned that's the thing that I, that I want to get out of this. Okay. All right. I don't have any further questions. Um, Mr. Goldsmith, do you have anything to add either as debtor's counsel or as a potential creditor of the debtor? Well, as debtor's counsel, uh, no, this is uh, clearly a no asset case, a uh, simple case. He wants to get a fresh start. Uh, Mr. Harrington's a, a lovely gentleman that just wants to get back on his feet. Um, and uh, like, like uh, we've indicated on the bankruptcy schedule, it looks to be uh, clearly a no asset bankruptcy case. But I believe there's a creditor here. Or oh, who's that? Yes, hello, I'm, uh, I'm uh, attorney uh, Smith and I represent uh, Mrs. Harrington. Um, Go ahead, please. Thank you. Just have a few questions. Uh, uh, as the bankruptcy petition uh, indicated, Mrs. Harrington's owed roughly $17,000. Uh, and hasn't been paid quite some time. Uh, Mr. Harrington, um, uh, I don't see that you mentioned on your bankruptcy schedules or your statement of income, uh, the money you receive under the table by working at Joe's Garage. Could you explain to me why that's not there and how much you receive on a monthly basis for that? That's just, that's, you know, a long time ago, I did some work for a friend. Um, I, I'm not, I don't get any money for that. It was just some work I was doing to help out a friend. I'm not, he doesn't pay me. It's just, you know, you know, sometimes when he needs some extra help, I go down there to help him. When was the last time you worked there? You know, I mean, I, maybe like a couple months ago, I, you know, he, he said, you know, he said he'd buy me a pizza if I went down and helped him out in the shop for the day. So, you know, I went down and gave him a, gave him a hand. What I also don't see listed on the bankruptcy schedules, Mr. Harrington, is uh, I understand that you have mechanic tools and a large uh, toolbox that you hold the mechanic tools in? I don't know what you mean by a, a large box. I, I got some, I mean, I got some old tools that, that I got from, you know, uh, you know, a, a job I had a long time ago. Uh, you know, they're old, they're old and rusty. I'm, you know, I didn't, I didn't really think that I needed to put those on the schedule. You know, I'm taking a look at the schedules right now. Uh, um, and uh, for debtors counsel, I do note that there um, are not any tools of the trade listed. Um, and so it sounds like the debtor may have had that, may have inadvertently, may have uh, overlooked that. Um, I, I would recommend that um, council consider amending the schedules and claiming the proper exemptions. Uh, Attorney Goldsmith, is that something you'll be able to attend to? 
I will uh, speak with uh, Mr. Harrington immediately after the conclusion of this uh, 341 meeting and any amendments that need to be made, we'll, uh, we will do so. I'm sure it was just inadvertent um, to, uh, to not disclose those assets uh, that sound to be minimal in nature. Um, so as creditors, as a creditors council, I have no further questions other than to uh, request that the trustee look into these issues a little further to make sure that uh, there's been full disclosure of assets uh, and, um, and other information as required on the bankruptcy documents. Yeah, I guess I would ask that um, if the creditors council or the creditor has any documentary evidence substantiating these claims, if you have pictures of these items or anything of that kind, or you may have something from the divorce proceeding, uh, a um, financial statement perhaps, um, or testimony from one of the um, divorce, uh, um, divorce hearings, um, that um, you supply those uh, to me. I can then provide those to Attorney Goldsmith um, and um, he can inquire of his clients. So if there's anything from the divorce proceeding or the financial statements, uh, please send those over. Will do. Okay, I have no further questions at this time. So Attorney Goldsmith, uh, debtor William Harrington, you can disconnect from the phone at this time. So um, if you could take down the hypothetical at this time, just a couple things I want to chat about um, here. So I think that that's really how it goes. Um, and um, the meetings are longer or shorter, depending upon whether we have a lot of people that aren't on this case jumping in, answering questions, which does happen because they don't know who necessarily is supposed to be there. Um, at the beginning of the meetings, um, as Jonathan said, I think it's a good idea to be on the line at least 10 minutes, 10 to five to 10 minutes before your meeting is called. Um, when I'm running on time, um, I will make an announcement applicable to all the cases. So I'll identify who I am, why you're there, um, what the purpose of the meeting is, that you're obligated to tell the truth, that if you don't tell the truth, you're subject to penalties, including fines and imprisonment. So I, I just like to give that one time at the very beginning of the meeting. Um, and then it's applicable to all of the cases. When people are late to the meeting, they don't get that. And then they start hearing questions and they think they apply to them and they start answering and it just makes for a very muddled up record. So I think it's a good idea, just like you would for a 341 meeting when they were in person, to um, uh, jump on the line early so that your client and you know what the rules of the game are gonna be. They run exactly like an in-person meeting but it's just good to be a little advanced. Uh, one, one thing I did want to talk about, and that is the schedule amendment. So I'm, I'm surprised in many cases that um, schedules are not amended. So something comes up during a 341 meeting and then it doesn't get amended. And I'm not sure why that is. Um, in some cases, the trustee may say, oh, you, you disclosed it during the meeting, that's sufficient. Um, and there may be nothing else going on, but I think the better practice is to always amend the schedules and list it because you never know what's going to come up. And um, uh, if you haven't listed it, it could be just that one extra straw that tips the scale later on for a um, discharge complaint. So you know about it, list it. It's at the 341 meeting and that's not enough. And then, you know, there's a case, there's a question of, well, is it listed if it's property, does it have to be on Schedule A, B, or if you put it on the sofa, is that enough? Um, I, I don't think you can disclose too much, right? So in bankruptcy, it's all about disclosure. You can't disclose too much. So I just, I'm surprised at how often I'll see debtors counsel get tripped up on that. It's a simple, there's a fee to do it, the amendment fee, if, but it's just a simple thing and you should absolutely do it because it will absolutely help you um, 
uh, later on down the road. Anything else, Jonathan yeah. or Bill, you might have about the 341 meeting, yeah. any questions? Well, just, just following up on your comment about amendments, um, that comes up all the time in discharge complaints that we file. Um, if people fail to, you know, amend their documents, that's something that always gets put in the complaint, and it's a, and it's a big issue. And and amended for everything you need to amend it for, we, we see all the time where they'll do an amendment and do, you know, one asset that they mentioned at the 341 meeting and not another. And so, you know, just do it once and get it on there. If you, if you know about it, make sure, you know, it's clean. I mean, your client is required to do that, so make sure... They meet their obligations there. Um, I don't know if there was a question on the Q&A, and I'm not sure if we answered or not, uh, as to whether or not there was um, a need to do one attorney declaration or two if there's a joint petition filed. Um, I think the best practice is to do two because you're, you're doing identification documents for two different people and it's cleaner. Um, you're going to have to just modify the document if you're doing it for a joint petition, but it's probably just cleaner to, to do two because you have separate identification documents for each person. But, um, you know, you could do it either way. I just think it's cleaner to do two rather than one. Okay. I just yeah, had... Yeah. Oh, go ahead, John. No, I just had two other points. I just wanted to... I, I, th I threw... Uh, uh, this wasn't part of the script to talk about a creditor that's the ex-wife's or soon be ex-wife's uh, uh, attorney, but uh, I, I bring that out because uh, it's the X factor that uh, we've referred to it as the X factor that always provides trustee with uh, in, uh, interesting information, whether it's the ex-wife or the ex-business partner. Uh, so um, if if they're separated, you got to, you know, obviously you want the debtor to make sure they disclose all the assets, but uh, be cognizant of the fact that uh, you got an uh, ex-spouse that, uh, that, that um, in this instance is owed a lot of money and is going to look, look around and uh, complain to the trustee about the failure to disclose assets and such. I just, wanna, I just want to know how my lawyer was representing me and my ex-wife at the same time. Is that a conflict? Hey. <laughs> Uh, the the only other thing I wanted to uh, re-emphasize uh, um, is what Don said about having your clients perhaps on the phone five or ten minutes before your scheduled 341 meeting. Um, it, when we're in person, I always ask the client to come down a little earlier because it's great to watch some other 341 meetings just, again, to see the process um, and make sure they're familiar with the questions. Most of the – there's a, a, you know, a standard list of questions that all trustees ask. So it's nice for a, uh, a client who has never gone through this procedure before to understand how it works. So whether it's the telephonic one, getting on to listen to a few beforehand, or in-person ones, getting there earlier to listen to some 341 meetings. So, so Jonathan, um, question for you. Um, are you confirming um, signatures during the telephonic meetings? I, I am. Um, I I, I, well, I, the way I ask it is ask uh, the debtor whether they've reviewed the bankruptcy, reviewed and signed the bankruptcy documents before they, uh, they were filed with the bankruptcy court. Uh, I don't, um, that's, I, I think that's the best I could hope for uh, as a result of the way we have to proceed telephonically. Um, they probably don't have a signed copy in front of them. Um, the lawyer has the original, obviously. And uh, I mean, if they're there with the lawyer, then that's, that's a different story. But if they're, 
the remote and not with the lawyer. I just asked to confirm that they've reviewed and signed the documents before they were filed to court. And another question, um, if a case, and, and maybe Bill, you may have some sense on this in terms of volume. There's a question, if a case backs up a docket, so let's say your nine o'clock case and your first one is a corporate case. Um, and it, it's, it's, it, it's um, very lengthy. Um, and then you have all these people on the phone. Is there a limit to the number of people that can get onto the phone? Um, I, I will say, I think it's easier now, by the way, for corporate cases to handle those because you can easily move them to another time. Uh, so that in another date with meetings being done telephonically, we can move it anywhere on the calendar uh, to any other date. So you can more, ease, more easily manage, but is there a volume limit, uh, Bill, on that, on that line? Yeah, there is. Um, the lines are limited to a uh, hundred people. Um, and we, so far we haven't had that many problems with it. We honestly, the, the biggest problem has been in the mega corporate cases around the country uh, it, for creditors meetings. And in those cases, we can get the line opened up, but it is a hundred people. And it's why we ask people to disconnect the phone line when their meeting is done. Just so, you know, if other people are getting on for the next set of meetings um, that we don't overwhelm the phone line. So it is a, it is about a hundred. It can go a little bit over a hundred, but hundred, a hundred is the number that we've used. Yeah. I've, I've been finding the meetings are running pretty much to the hue um, in terms of time, maybe even better uh, telephonically. So I haven't had a case that backed up. And if I did, I was able to get my preliminary questioning done and moving it to the next day or another date. So I think it's been a little easier to manage those really lengthy cases telephonically. Jonathan, what do you think? Yeah, I have, uh, for the most part, it's worked out quite well. Um, I, I usually hear uh, four, I schedule four every half an hour. I don't know what you do, uh, Don, um, but uh, four seems to be a, a good number for, for me. Um, there, there, uh, there was a question I just want to address. Uh, someone asked if, the, if there's a, I believe it's a non-exempt asset uh, that's uh, I'm assuming scheduled and the case is closed. Is that deemed abandoned? Yes, uh, it is. If, it, if it's scheduled, uh, on the on the documents, bankruptcy documents, and it's not administered by the bankruptcy trustee and the case is closed, it's deemed abandoned. You know, there's been some very interesting case law there about what does the word scheduled mean? So um, if it's on the statement of financial affairs, if the lawsuit is referenced on the statement of financial affairs in response to, is there any litigation pending? And it's referenced there with the debtors of plaintiff, but it's not on schedule AB, is that scheduled? For purposes of abandonment, and there's actually a there is a um, there's there's two sides to that coin, as you can imagine. So you want to, as to Bill's point, make sure it's everywhere that it needs to be, so that no one could ever suggest that it wasn't scheduled, that the trustee didn't administer it, and that you couldn't abandon it because that issue has come up. And it was actually a case where it was referenced during the 341 meeting, listed on the statement of financial affairs, but not on Schedule AB. So was it abandoned or not? So yeah, so you don't have to worry about it if it's on Schedule AB, right? That's really, just be careful to make sure it's everywhere it needs to be. Um, I think that's all the questions we have, Kate. So maybe we'll turn it back over to you. Um, yeah. Oh, um, thank you, gentlemen. I really appreciate, uh, and the BBA appreciates that you took the time to address everyone today, that you answered all the questions that have come in. This was very informative. Um, it was very substantive and we really appreciate all the information. I know that 
practitioners will find this very helpful. So thank you very much and hope to have you back again. Great, thank you, Kate. Thank you.